the incomparable. Number 476, August 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable, and it is our summer of Spider-Man. It's more of a short season of Spider-Man, really, because we're only doing these three movies, the Sam Raimi trilogy. We've done Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 2. You know what comes next, yes. 2007 Spider-Man 3. Are you sure? That doesn't seem right. Mm, <laughs> I'm un- I'm unfortunately, it is It is Steve Lutz who joins me to talk about Spider-Man 3. Hello. Hello. The Summer of Spider-Man. Summer of Spider-Man. It was, it was going so well. It's hip. It's now. It's wow and how, it Jason. It is wow and how. It's, <laughs> mm, I came up with that one myself. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you did. G. McDonald is also here. Hello. Hi, Jason. I I had a choice. Everyone has a choice to watch this movie or not, but I did watch it. (laughs) And Moises Chuyan is here. Moises, you can't see me, but I'm giving you the finger guns. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jason, I'd like to call back to my catchphrase from the first installment of the Summer of Spider-Man and and say, Shazam! Yeah, yeah, indeed. (laughs) It's in there. What isn't in there? They made a third Spider-Man movie. That's my backstory that I'm going to tell you here. <laughs> the first two were so profitable that they just continued to make them, and they made Spider-Man 3. And uh, this one, they decided to look to the great advice of classic, brilliant uh, superhero movies like the Batman series, where they just got better and better as they added more supervillains in. And so, <laughs> this movie, how many does it have? Three. Not one. Three. Not two. But three. Three villains. So that's technically then the, the three in Spider-Man 3 refers to the number of villains. Yeah. It's got to be three <laughs> times better than the first movie then. It's, uh, you know, you can't argue with the math. Nope. And, and you know, we're used to Peter Parker being a sad sack, but uh, this movie begins uh, with uh, him declaring the people really like me yeah, he's, he's uh, on top of the world you know uh, jason it, it it actually begins with three times as long of a previously on spider-man <laughs> montage as we've gotten before a lot of clips mostly from the first movie in case you've yeah. forgotten who is this man who is spider-like and how did he get here <laughs> yeah i found the cre- the opening credits kind of confusing too because they would do some of it they'd be showing you know the the actors and then sometimes they were showing the clips from previous movies with but with other actors names up there but not the actors who were in the clips and it was i thought this is not a really auspicious that beginning. is not toe for grace <laughs> yeah i mean the the good thing is at least we are past the who am i stage and he knows he's peter parker finally <laughs> no, he yes. didn't say who am i that's he said it's me but uh, you know, I, I will say that 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 that, uh, that we do not lose the thread of les miserables because uh, that is that is very much one of the central threads of this movie is uh, is a Les Miserables-inspired villain. <laughs> so uh, we meet some other people because we see that, that Peter is in college in this movie. He's, uh, he's, in, he's in college, and Gwen Stacy, who's played by Bryce Dallas Howard, and she's got the little hairband and everything, just like in the comic books, is, she's inserted into this movie. She doesn't do a whole lot, but she is in this movie in a few places. And also, something that I wasn't aware existed, which is college bullies. <laughs> There are college bullies in the college classroom who are bullying Peter Parker. You know, he's having a unique experience as a middle-aged young man uh, going back to school 
uh, you know, the, the, the kids these days, they just, they don't respect their elders. That's <laughs> no, the problem. That's true. Well, and it's, it's good to see that he's fine. His spider sense has finally been honed to the, uh, to the fine point that he no longer gets hit in the head with backpacks. Although he has in his old age lost his ability to dodge spit wads, yes. which we saw in excruciating detail in the first film. So. I like to think that his ability, his spider sense is so honed that he knows the spit wads won't hurt him. Oh. Except emotionally, of course. But uh, so then it doesn't get triggered by the spit wads. That's what I think is going on. But anyway, there are bullies in a college classroom. I don't think that's a thing. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Not like high school bullies. These are high school bullies. Anyway, Mary Jane is also a success. She's on Broadway, except it turns out um, she's not very good and she gets bad reviews and she gets fired later. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, anybody who goes out on stage on Broadway singing to a backing track. Uh, you know, they, maybe they deserve the bad reviews they get. Some part of me thinks that some people are out there listening to this thinking, you're making this up. This is one of those episodes where you made up what happens in a movie that nope. doesn't exist. <laughs> no, <Nope. laughs> <It's> no, <not laughs> we've we've both retired from making up movies that don't exist. If only I was. But I'm not. Harry Osborne, by the way, also goes to see Mary Jane at the uh, at the premiere of her musical, just as Peter does. But of course, Harry doesn't want to talk to Peter because Harry is too busy becoming, you know, his own little. Uh, little green goblin and that's uh we'll, we'll be getting a lot of that in this movie where there's kind of grumpy uh grumpy harry with james franco uh just being kind of insufferable and you know it's not entirely his fault because the character is also insufferable it's possible that the critics are just upset that they paid for a broadway film that consists solely of a woman standing on a staircase <laughs> very slowly moving it's on a very it's very busby berkeley it works on screen not so much on stage uh, but what really does work is is James Franco in full smarm sleaze Harry Osborn mode, which is the only version of this character that feels remotely natural <laughs> coming from James Franco. He does do that well. I'll give him that. Now, in our Spider-Man 2 episode, we pointed out that uh, it's a little weird that Peter and Mary Jane like to hang out in big webs that were extruded <laughs> from Peter's body as a fluid. Uh, but here they are again, because, you know, one of the things that they love to do as a couple is go out to the park, spin a big spider web and watch the stars. Yeah, you got to recline in your own effluvia to really appreciate it. <laughs> hey, sweetheart, let me just shoot some fluid and let's relax. Ooh. Like, was a, was a blanket on the ground not good enough for them? No, I guess not. I guess not. Better to be up in the in the trees. Well, you get you know you get ants and stuff down there. Yeah. In the sky, you only get strands of your own discharge. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but why are they really looking at, at the stars? Because, and just follow me here, people. One of the key plot points in this movie is that Peter and Mary Jane happen to be near the landing spot of some kind of meteor that comes from outer space and lands on the ground in the middle of the park because it's an incredible coincidence. This The world of the Spider-Man movies only has eight people in it, and it's in about a, a, a square block is where everything happens. And uh, when they leave the park, the little uh, a little blob from out of the meteor attaches uh, itself to Peter's uh, license plate of his scooter. And uh, it's just an amazing coincidence, but we'll be seeing that blob again later. And that's why that's why they're looking at the stars in the park. J Jason, how do you explain it to the cops when they pull you over because your license plate isn't visible due to alien sticky goop infestation? I'm starting to think maybe J. Jonah is right and Spider-Man is, is a menace because literally all of these supervillains and or aliens that, that <laughs> land 
happen directly adjacent to Peter or somebody who Peter loves or knows very well uh-huh. or is interviewing. I think it's him. I think he is the problem. It could be. The bugle's onto something. I think this movie is a testament to the fact that indeed J. Jonah Jameson was right. <laughs> anyway, now that we've seen all this, we know that the, the, the all our players are in place. We've got a blob of goo attached to a license plate. We've got <laughs> Harry Osborne. He's kind of grumpy. But no... Because there's another what player yet to be brought in uh, amid all of the above ground trains that do not actually exist in New York City, but they do in this world of Spider-Man, comes Thomas Hayden Church, who's breaking into his sick daughter's room, where uh, he puts on his classic stripy Sandman shirt as seen in 60s comic books. Mm-hmm. And he's there, we learn, because even though his marriage has dissolved and he's broken himself out of prison, he still cares about his sick little girl. I know I'm a complete knucklehead for appreciating the fact that that shirt is exactly right, but I really appreciate the fact that that shirt is exactly right. All of the little details that are pulled straight from the comic books, uh-huh. you know, it's 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 fan service and it's patronizing and uh, and it works great on me because I laugh every time I see it because it's like it's like literally out of the '60s comics or out of the '60s cartoon. Because it's mm-hmm. as simplistic a design as possible, right? It's he has a green shirt that has like dark green stripes, horizontal stripes. It is a very, very simple design. And he's like, hey, look what's still here. My old shirt. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. The shirt that I should put on. It just feels right. Uh-huh. I don't know why, but exactly this shirt. It's his crime shirt. You know, does he has it on when he uh, kills Uncle Ben, right? I mean, sorry, spoilers, uh, yeah, people. But... It, oh, <laughs> oh, God. Oh, just Steve. Come on, man. Yeah. It's his lucky shirt. It's his lucky crime shirt. Is <laughs> and and that's why his his estranged wife has made sure to put it right on top of the drawer, yeah. so that when he does inevitably sneak in, she'll she'll say one thing out of her mouth, but in the back of her mind, she's really thinking, "I just want him to go out and do crimes because it's what he's best as." I think she's confronting him with the fact that he can't pretend to be innocent. That in fact, here's your crime shirt, criminal. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's it's like going here's the flask. Here's the flask, you drunk. Yeah, that's right. I dare you. Here it is. Well, and it's a small thing, but the pants are right, too. He's got his classic brown slacks with the belt. That is the Sandman outfit. That is is his crime outfit. Makes me happy when I see it, even when so many things are making me sad. (laughs) This setup of of Sandman is this Jean Valjean-style... Uh, you know, villain who's, you know, got, got, got good motivations behind what it was he done. I, you know, we've been, we've been cracking wise already, but to this point in the movie, watching it originally, I was, I was kind of okay with it. I, the stuff that comes later is, is definitely what uh, sent me on the downspin, but I was kind of okay with this stuff. It kind of played with the same comic bookiness of the second movie. Um, albeit with the, uh, the incredibly convenient design choices. Uh, that just made it, you know, uh, jump off of the comics page. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I dare say I, I found a little bit of this this bit of Flint Marco uh, uh, bordering on touching, uh, echoing echoing how I felt about Doc Ock. All of that goes down the tubes later. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I agree. You know, Flint Marco, he is not the problem with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Flint Marco is the is the underrated hero of this movie for a lot of it. He, he would not be on my top five list of problems with this movie. He is he is fine. Well, they're aware that part of what worked so well in the first two films was that there was a touch of humanity or some kind of good motivations behind the Green Goblin and Doc Doc Ock, and so you know 
they're they're absolutely going to make uh, uh, the Flint Marco have the same sort of thing. Yeah. But this is like the laziest, most shorthand form it's of true. giving him a sad backstory, giving him a, a dying daughter that he just has to go out and commit crimes in order to pay for her operation. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's straight out of uh, a Christmas Carol. It's like a bad Christmas Carol adaptation. I mean, I, I, I literally expected him to break out into "Who Am I?" from Les Misérables <laughs> multiple times throughout the movie. Later in this movie, um, and I'll just mention it now, when confronted with the fact that he is, for reasons that we'll get into, very strange reasons, the actual killer of Uncle Ben, mm -hmm, sure, um, his response is, but you got to understand, my daughter is sick. (laughs) What? Peter stops by Aunt May in her apartment because remember she sold the house and uh, that kid who totally knows that Peter is Spider-Man who was helping her pack. Anyway, um, she uh, is in the apartment. Peter is there to tell her that he's going to marry, he's going to ask Mary Jane to marry him. Uh, But uh, then very quickly, what we end up with is a, uh, a big action scene very early in this movie where Harry riding on his father's goblin glider uh, it attacks Peter and there is a chase through the city. This seems to be a new model goblin glider. This is, this okay. is more of a the goblin, goblin glider, snowboard. This is now the cool, super cool Legolas brand model super <laughs> skateboard. Yes. This you, you remember in the late 90s when everything was extreme with multiple X's uh-huh. and like, extreme. Ex, like extra Z's thrown into everything. This is the extreme sports goblin. This is not yes. your father's goblin your grandfather's goblin your great uncle's goblin no this is extreme sports goblin well he's poochie and like poochie he does disappear very shortly oh man yes because the goblin glider is no longer the classic green goblin goblin glider it is a a skateboard that flies um and then he throws i think it's really great to get in with the kids who love harry potter that his weapon is the golden snitch Right. <laughs> so he throws a bunch of those golden snitches yeah. at Peter and he's like, whoa, Harry Potter, no. I hate those things. Um, and then after what I think is actually a very competently made um, chase sequence. It's it's well choreographed. You know where they're going. You yeah. have a sense of space. It, it, I mean, it works on that level. Yeah. yeah, I like that it's 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 a big chase scene that's in really super close quarters because it's between two buildings. You don't see that very often. And they, they make good use of the obstructions that would naturally be there between two buildings. Yeah, it's the equivalent of the Star Wars chases where the Millennium Falcon also go, always goes like, ha ha, you only think I am a horizontal spaceship, but I can also right. be a vertical spaceship. <laughs> I can rotate. And uh, and then the other, the other spaceships that's are like, a good trick. what? Our, our spaceships are cube-shaped and we can't fit in yeah. that narrow space. Well, this is like that, where Peter's like, ha ha, I am Spider-Man and can go through this narrow space. And uh, Harry's like, yeah, I can do that too. <laughs> My glider turns if- sideways now. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you spent the better part of 15 years wanting a more extreme hardcore hoverboard chase than you got in Back to the Future 2, <laughs> you got it. that's what the sequence is for <laughs> you. Yes. It's Spider-Man yeah. versus the hoverboard goblin. That should be his name. Hoverboard <laughs> goblin. Hoverboard <laughs> goblin. Uh, hover goblin. Anyway, uh, in the end, though, this chase ends in the most brutal fashion you can almost imagine, which is that Peter uses a spider web to clothesline Harry uh, just right like at the neck basically he collapses in the ground he appears to be completely unresponsive so peter does what you do when somebody's broken their neck which is give him cpr 
Sure. Yeah. Because <laughs> how, how does I medicine work? I was definitely work? thinking, wait a second. Yeah. You, you, you yeah. didn't do all the, the, the pre-CPR uh, checks before you started yeah. that. He's but. definitely dead. He's definitely snapped his neck, but he's going to give him some CPR. He's not dead, as it turns out, but, you know, thank goodness for that CPR. In, in keeping with uh, the way that, that these three movies have been structured, I have an expositional statement uh, in the middle of the first act. <laughs> okay. You don't say. Now, I, I, think it, I think it bears noting that at this point, he does something that is distinctly like the jerk emo Peter stuff that he does when he gets grabbed by the symbiote. But he has, it hasn't been established that, that he has been influenced or taken by it in any way as of yet. And he, this is the beginning of inexplicably strange things that he does that I guess are sort of because of proximity to it but that's never that's never explained as to that's why uh, it would happen because otherwise our impression of peter is that at this point he's learned a bunch of lessons or he's just out of his mind or is suffering from early onset dementia because he's just he's just doing stuff that the guy at the end of spider-man 2 it it does not feel like he would have done um so yeah this is this is uh this this was for me the close lining of harry um i uh Kind of the out beginning of character. Of, kind <laughs> kind of out of character. Kind of out well, of character. Now, to be fair, he's fighting for his life there, and perhaps he thought yeah. that, you know, knocking him off of his glider, he could catch him or something, but then he ends up hitting the pipe after being <laughs> clotheslined. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it's it, you know, in close quarters fighting. You're not necessarily always going to not, uh, you know, knock your best friend into a board and break his neck. Okay. Okay. That's, that's fair. We'll, we'll get to something in a minute that, that, uh, that, that, that won't fall under that heading, but I'll, right. I, I but think I'll concede the very point definitely here. portrayed here as having gotten quite a big head and, and sort of, uh, you know, becoming an arrogant pain in the ass that way so definitely one of the things i noted just in the beginning of this is i i don't like smiley toby mcguire like it doesn't really wear well on him somehow and maybe he's supposed to look awkward that he's happy and he's better off being depressed but even when he's depressed though he's smiley toby mcguire that's his (laughs) one facial expression yeah but I, i get what you're saying which is when when toby mcguire is walking around all happy you kind of want to like tell him to snap out of it or something, right? Like, don't be so happy, you. You should be miserable for a couple of reasons at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll find reasons sooner or later. Sooner you always do. or later. So um, uh, meanwhile, uh, in a very poorly constructed government facility, um, uh, <laughs> yes. Marco is spotted by, uh, by cops who say, hey, it's that guy who what escaped from the prison. And they chase yes. him and he leaps over a fence and takes about 10 steps and falls into a giant uh, radioactive nuclear particle accelerator sand trap thing. Yes. <laughs> it that does not seem to be shielded very well with the exception of a single chain link fence. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a cyclone <laughs> fence between and 10 steps between New York and the radioactive experimental sand pit thing. And what is it they're trying to do exactly? Is it like a gigantic salad spinner or I mean, they've got a sand pit and some spinny things and there doesn't appear to be any real experiment here other than let's make yeah. the thing spin. And the scientists are very bad, too, because the scientists are sort right. of like, oh, something weird is happening. And he's like, oh, it's probably a bird. Turn on the thing. <laughs> like, it'll, All right. yeah, it'll fly away. It, it was. I mean, if I were a scientist, I would complain about the movie's portrayal of scientists because it makes them look pretty dumb. It's it is it is a 
uh, monster movie, like 50s monster movie level science thing that's happening here, which I think, again, we've talked about this. Sam Raimi has a great deal of love for che- the, the cheesiness of 50s and 60s horror movies and comic books and things like that. And that's what he's kind of getting at here is this is like classic Marvel villain origin, but right. it, it's so jarring in the modern context of this movie to have this be, uh, you know, it is, I mean, I laughed, which I guess is maybe what he intends me to do is being like, boy, these scientists are really bad. But uh, I think maybe it it goes a little too far. By the way, also a pulse pounding special effects scene right here where we burrow into Flint Marco's DNA and discover that it's, I guess, being sandblasted or something. (laughs) It's like one grain of sand enters into his pore. And then takes over his body. So yeah. I I don't know. Maybe that's a genetically modified piece of sand that <laughs> coalesces all of the powers of eight ordinary types of sand. As we see later, he's he's Sandman, the human sandstorm, who inexplicably uh, becomes incredibly adept at his power set surprisingly quickly. Well, he has that locket, you see, and that focuses mm-hmm. his, uh, his resolve. Ah, see, there mm-hmm. we go. I forgot, you know, one of the various artifacts of narrative convenience sprinkled throughout <laughs> this whole movie where everything is just, it, everything is, it, it exists and it's shut up. Don't think about the logic um, because th- this, this part of the story literally exists to advance the plot yeah. and, and, uh, and, and continue to gaslight you into thinking that this makes any kind of sense. You see, he had to master his powers immediately. He has a dying daughter. Yes, you, yeah, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry for being so insensitive. <laughs> his daughter is very sick. He had no choice. Indeterminate illness. Um, the uh, we, we got a quick cutaway to the hospital where it turns out that even though he was clotheslined and his head smashed <laughs> on, a, on a pipe and he fell very far and then got some very inappropriate CPR from Peter Parker. Harry's going to be fine. Um, Also, you can put this on your list of movies and other entertainment vehicles where a character gets convenient memory loss by getting a whack on the noggin. Yeah, apparently that pipe was made out of coconuts. I was going to say, this is your Gilligan's Gilligan's Island plot device here. (laughs) Yep. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by DoorDash. Whether you're super focused at work, having a chill day, just forgot to do meal prep, that's me. You still need to eat. With DoorDash, you can have dinner from your favorite restaurant delivered right to your door. Ordering is easy. Just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and have your food delivered to you wherever you are. Your favorite pizza place? It's probably already on DoorDash. There are over a quarter of a million restaurants in over 3,000 cities. Door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada. So you can order from your local go-to places or... Choose from national restaurant chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, the Cheesecake Factory, and many more. I just had DoorDash last night. We went the there's an Indian place that we really like that doesn't deliver, and uh, we didn't want to leave the house. And so my daughter and I picked our uh, our meals, and uh, we actually set it in advance to be delivered because we were thinking about it in mid-afternoon. So we set it in advance and said, deliver it to us at 6.15. And uh, there's a knock on the door at 6.15 with all the food that we picked from our local Indian place. And uh, it was super tasty. So we were all happy and we didn't have to go out. And, uh, you know, that's the solution is to stay inside and eat food that you like. So listeners to this podcast, you can get $5 off your first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code INCOMPARABLE. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code INCOMPARABLE. Download the app now and start 
planning your dinner where you won't need to leave home. You've got to go to the app store, which does not physically involve you leaving your home, and then use the promo code incomparable to get $5 off your first order from DoorDash. Thank you to DoorDash for supporting the incomparable. So good news. Harry is nice now because he doesn't remember the events of the previous two movies uh, for now. Um, Cut back to... Uh, the bo- giant pile of sand, and we get what is, I think, legitimately the best scene in this entire movie, which is with you. a very slow, methodical thing where Sandman kind of figures out and coalesces and starts moving the sand and kind of manifests himself as this as this living pile of sand and he tries to reach for his daughter's locket and it passes through, you know, his fingers of sand and then he like emphasizes like i'm gonna get it together and he then he picks it up and it's this yes there's no dialogue it's entirely just a special effects scene but i think it's i think it's very good i think this is a a good again good things about sandman like this scene (laughs) yeah this this is very classic universal monsters style where you're you're getting to see it and feel it and experience it and you're not you're not being beaten over the head with uh, with incredibly mundane dialogue like you are throughout the rest of the movie. Well, we already know that Raimi loves Hellraiser, and this is effectively, I think, his his homage to the um, scene in Hellraiser where uh, where the brother kind of reconstitutes himself from a drop of blood. Um, you know, it's very similar in terms of it. You know, it starts and stops, and you can see it sort of working out how to how to how to build itself. The effect is superb, um, which, you know, there's a lot of a lot of effects in this movie that have have uh, aged kind of jankily. But this one, I think, works really well, I guess, just because it's it's particles and uh, those are relatively easy, I guess, to do even with the technology of the time. But, yeah, it looks neat. And I, I like how he kind of collapses in on himself the first time he tries yeah. and fails. It's, yeah. it's, it's anybody good... who's played with sand in a sandbox or at the beach or something also knows something <laughs> about the physics of sand and how difficult they are. It is to hold together at times and all of that. And that's all in here too. Yeah. Shout out to our friend Joe Steele, who uh, although he has said on several occasions that he he only worked on the bad Spider-Man movies, I think he worked on this shot. It's a good shot, Joe. It's a really good shot. Did he do this? Yeah. I think he was involved in this one, yeah. Wow, Joe, you're all right. I, 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 I find that this is one specific part of the movie that holds up better than most other parts of the movie and, and tells story better than most of the rest of the movie <laughs> entirely entirely because of the care that was given to selling it and making it work to the point that when they made that awful uh, Mummy remake in 2017, uh, I, I think they looked at this as, you know what, we need to do that just without any of the gravitas, any of the emotion um, you know, and any we of the need good to do stuff. it for ninety minutes. <laughs> yeah. This, whereas this was a a shot that basically was handed off to the visual effects people, and they very clearly took great care in putting it together. And it's uh, it's it's good. It's it's good. Jason, I thought we were supposed to be trashing this movie. Why are we liking well, it all of a sudden? Let's give it a bad review, like Mary Jane gets in the newspaper, which gets her fired because one bad review of a show that only mentions one person as being not talented, they're going to fire her. Well, well, I mean, that's not as far fetched as the fact that the review says that she has a tiny voice, and I, I would think that the reason they replaced her actual voice singing with something that doesn't sound like a tiny voice would be the thing that would be stranger. <laughs> 
I, I do like the moment of cognitive dissonance where uh, she says, they say that I wasn't, I couldn't be heard beyond the first row. And Peter says, well, I heard you and you sounded great. And she says, Peter, you were in the first row. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know. I thought that was really funny. You are not qualified to judge this review, Peter Parker. Um, but, you know, there's no time for this because a, a crane is out of control in New York City and it's swinging around and it's demolishing things. Also, Gwen Stacy, who is, the, who is in Peter's class, she also happens to be a model being menaced by the swinging crane. Because again, there are not that many characters and there's not <laughs> yeah. there's only one block in New York City. And so she is, she is a, 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 a student slash model and her photo shoot goes awry by the, uh, the crane that's zipping around on the ground because, again... It, there's only one block in New York City, it, are the police, including her dad, who just doesn't even know she's there, but he's been called to the crane scene. That's James Cromwell. Who is definitely the father of Gwen Stacy. Yeah. He horribly <laughs> ill-used in this movie, too. It's like, uh, why why is he even in this? I guess, I mean, it was work, but like he, they, they, he doesn't do anything in this movie at all. Like, why did they have to get him? It yeah. kind of made me think something's going to happen with him, because why would you get him, James Cromwell yeah. if you weren't going to use him? But. I mean, it's always good to see James Cromwell. I love the guy. Sure, yeah. he's great. It's uh, It does make you wish that there maybe was something more to the character. And I, I wonder if maybe there wasn't more at some point. And well, when they cast out. him, right? And then yeah. they took that part out of the script. And also on the ground, by the way, a photographer from the, from the Daily Bugle, it's Topher Grace. Or as my autocorrect wrote down, Gopher Grace. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Okay, go for go for Grace, go for Grace, go for Grace, and two. the guy you get when Toby McGuire isn't available, and he's in this movie too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, he's Eddie Brock, photographer, and uh, we'll be seeing more of him. Also, uh, coming back from Spider-Man Two, is the fact that Sam Raimi loves nothing more than having his actresses scream their voices out because Gwen yeah. Stacy does that. Up in uh, up in that photo shoot place, as the girders are flying around, there are lots and lots and lots of screams. Admittedly, there are a lot of reasons to scream in this scene. <laughs> well, I, I I actually like this scene a lot, just because I don't know. I I guess my fondness for disaster films it had that towering inferno without the inferno, right? Yeah. <laughs> or you know, Godzilla without without the lizard. Like mm-hmm. you know, there something is tearing apart the building and uh, people are screaming and, um, you know, and having lived in New York for a while, like definitely it's a little nerve wracking how, you know, the buildings are so close together that something going wrong on one building could impact, you know, your building. But I think my problem with this is not the actual action of it, but the fact Mm -hmm. that, um, it is all the coincidences of, oh, here's a character who already knows Peter. She's in danger. Here's her dad who just happens to be down below. Here's Peter's rival who happens to be down below. It's just a, a as economical a set of characters as possible. Yes. And this is when he the, he first finds out that this guy is dating his daughter. So there's yet another connection. Yeah. There. Right, right. That's true. He's he's dating Gwen. And let's throw on top of it that although this is an exciting scene where Spider-Man saves Gwen, I I think it's also interesting that... There's a runaway crane, but as soon as he picks right. Gwen out and puts her on the ground, everybody's like, oh, problem solved. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> what about the crane? Yeah. Doesn't matter. Save the copier. The Save the copier. You know, we mentioned on, on previous episodes that, uh, that, that you know, there's this kind of 1960s but today feel to all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and narratively, this whole scene 
is nothing but the stuff that people who say, oh, they're, the movies, they're not exactly like the comics were 55 years ago. Well, this scene is exactly like the comics were 55 years ago in the bad way. Um, but, you know, things, things, uh, things all conspire to make New York City the smallest, tiniest, most enormous city in the world. Yeah, actually, you see that crane later, I think, you know, in the background of other scenes, like it's still like hanging up there. So, well, it's the fourth villain in this film. So, it has to <laughs> yeah, yeah, overzealous overdevelopment, the true villain of Spider Man 3. <laughs> also, the so we also see the Daily Bugle at this point in a very painful scene where uh, Jonah is pitched. Uh, that the Daily Bugle's new marketing slogan will be "It's hip, it's now, it's wow, and how." And how? how? Spider-Man's not there to save Jonah from a Marx Brothers level slapstick scene involving bottles of pills. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jonah keeps getting buzzed um, by oh, Betty yeah. Brandt to be warned <laughs> to take his his, uh, his heart uh, medication, his blood pressure pills, and not to get stressed out while he sits through this. Uh, and although I really have liked the the bugle scenes in the other movies, this one isn't any good. I think I think the whole thing with its hip, it's now, it's wow and how, and all of that, it's just kind of embarrassing. And I felt bad for everybody who had to act in it. Uh, it's I don't know a little too disconnected that. from anything going on in the movie. Yeah. It's just, it's totally an adjunct to it. So, I mean, why are we wasting our time with it? Although I actually kind of found it kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, the, the, the slogan being pitched is so grown worthy, like so terrible that I, I couldn't even buy into it being like something that someone would think would be good. So, you know, that, that, <laughs> that he'd be like, no, no, this is a good slogan. It's like, no, no one in the world thinks that's a good slogan. So that, that's the part is I, I kind of wanted him to be a little more kind of plausibly awful at marketing and not just utterly incompetent, jokey. I don't know. That's why it didn't work for me. But, you know, it's wow and how. <laughs> um, also, but what we really get in this scene is that Eddie Brock is super gross to Betty Brandt. Super gross. Like, mm -hmm. standing oh, yeah. too close to her. He And then he sells a photo and is a, and is a, a suck up. And if we ever... Were, it was it to be clear that Topher Grace, uh, as Eddie Brock, is meant to be despised. This this scene does do it. It's really uncomfortable. And uh, yeah, yuck. Ooh. Oof. Yeah, they, they italicize and highlight and circle with a Sharpie every single opportunity they can to communicate, by the way, this guy is a scumbag. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of a problem because they they want it to have the ability to, to later make us feel a little bad for him. Mm -hmm. That he's been, you know, kicked to the curb and his career is in shambles and all this stuff. Uh, you know, because he's a supervillain, but he must have a tragic backstory of some kind. And they, he's so foul in pretty much every scene he's in that uh, it's utterly impossible to care at all about anything bad happening to him. I wonder when I watch this, and I wondered this the first time too, what would, how would it play if Eddie was a rival for Peter, but not a bad guy? And where his desperation after getting fired puts him in uh puts him in this weakened position where he accepts being venom but what we get is he he deserves everything that he gets like right. and, and so to have that moral quandary later in the movie where peter where he begs peter like oh i know you just found out that i'm a a plagiarist and a faker and i falsified my photos and sold them to the daily bugle and they're gonna have to uh, uh, admit that they printed fake photos but 
I need this job. My daughter is very sick. Oh, no, wrong guy. Wrong guy. I need this job. <laughs> and Peter's like, too oh, bad. Oh, God, I'm I need turning, this job. I'm turning you in. And, and I really like, want this job. And we're supposed to think, wow, Peter's such a jerk right now. Right, right. He's doing this, but it's like he's completely justified. So I wonder sometimes, what if Eddie was more just Peter's rival, doing it in a way that Peter doesn't like or doesn't agree with, and that then Peter being a a jerk at that point in his life uh, does this thing to him and is responsible for Eddie's fate. But this movie is just not, it, it's, I'm going to say it. It's too lazy to do that. <laughs> well, oh, then, well, then you get into the fact that, that Sam Raimi very openly did not want to put venom in this movie in the first sure. place. And so th- this could be evidence, you know, to, to that point of him just going, you know what, screw this guy. Saboteur! Uh, so, so, yeah, some, <laughs> some, some, sometimes the things that, that executives force into your movie, you just make them want to deserve being eaten by an alien. I just, But it means that it's nonsensical, right? It means that, that the attempt, the move later to make us feel like Peter did a bad thing in turning him in right. is just, it doesn't follow. From and I mean, everything else. that he's doing during that point of the film, we're supposed to be disgusted with. So there's there's no doubt that it's supposed to be like, oh, man, he's been real harsh to this guy. It's like, no, he's absolutely doing what I would do in that situation. Yeah. Slap that picture down. Tell Robbie Robertson that the guy is a fake and uh, get his ass kicked out of there. Yeah. That's, that's what he does. And I'm like, OK, cool. Go go. Uh, uh, my chemical Peter. You're, <laughs> you're doing uh, all right. So Peter and Harry have a weird exchange because, of course, Harry's got the the wacky amnesia. Um, they are they are replacing. <laughs> wait, Mary wait, wait, Jane wait, Jason, Jason, yes, Jason, yes, Jason. Yes, 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 We're yes. missing the real star of this scene, iconic Marvel Comics character Bernard the Butler, who we met in Spider Man oh, Two. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the basketball that says Parker on no, it. Not not <laughs> Parker only, the basketball. Not, not only not only is Bernard uh, you know r- r- returning in this scene, but but he full on gets like coverage. It, and he's the beginning of this scene. He, we begin this fe- this scene, medium shot on Bernard, the butler, the yes. sensational butler uh, that that has always played a crucial role uh, in the world <laughs> of right. Bruce. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Harry Osborne. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bernard the butler. Okay, I stand corrected. Moises. Also, Bernard the butler is in that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the the poor the poor man's Alfred Pennyworth. Well, and we have the same problem here that we've had throughout with Harry, which is that they're trying to give the the supposed eternal friendship, best friendship between Peter and Harry, like some kind of emotional heft that they have just not set up. And it's it, it every time this happens, I'm like, God, guys, yeah. I can see what you're trying to do here. If you had pulled this off, I would probably really like it. And yet. You know, you've you've failed on so many fronts with the relationships between these main characters mm-hmm. that uh, it just it it means nothing. Also, it's hey, isn't it great that we can be friends now that you don't remember anything because I <laughs> yeah. clotheslined you and your head received severe <laughs> yeah. trauma? Now we can be pals again. Mm-hmm. Sort of <laughs> reminds me of uh, in Buffy when uh, when Willow uh, removes the memory of an argument you know from uh, from her girlfriend and it's like you can't just go on yeah. and not tell the person what happened our relationship <laughs> is great because you don't remember all the things i did to you yay <laughs> yeah yep sometimes gaslighting is good wait a minute what am i <laughs> what? saying <laughs> is that that's something the bad peter parker would say anyway it's a uh, world unity day i mean spider-man day, <laughs> day. <laughs> The Spivey Day Parade is in town. No Macy Gray, though, for some reason. No Macy yeah. Gray. Unfortunately, she was not available, but they're going to give Spider-Man the key to the city. She's working on next year's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know who is available? Mary Jane's replacement in her Broadway play, 
who sounds exactly like Mary Jane did in the earlier scene. (laughs) It's weird. It's weird. Anyway, Gwen Stacy is on hand because Spider-Man saved her life when that crane was out of control. And, uh, and in another just bizarre choice, um, Peter decides the right thing to do here is to reenact the upside down kissing scene from Spider-Man one with the random girl that he saved from who who is the girl in his class, but also the random girl he saved from the uh, crane wreck. Yes, as Mary Jane looks on in disgust. <laughs> and, and, and so to Moises's point about like, are we supposed to believe that the little goo that was attached to his his uh, his scooter is now, even though he's not wearing it as a as a article of clothing, is impacting his brain? I I don't think the movie sets it up, but clearly this is not normal behavior that a human would do of like oh i know i'll do it i'll kiss a random girl with my girlfriend looking on that'll i don't know why that would be a problem to reenact this important moment we had in our relationship with someone else on a stage in front of the city and that yet yeah, it's what peter peter does i, I don't know i, I kind of buy this though yeah. I, he's so he's been set up as so full of himself at this point and completely unaware of what mary jane's going through she's already been fired and he doesn't even know because she's you know, every, every time she starts talking about her problems, he, he likens it to something he's going through. Yes, that's true. So he's just become so cocksure and, and uh, you know, his head is so large that he's missing everything that's going on around him. I don't think it even occurs to him what a horrendous thing he's doing here. He just hears the crowd chanting, kiss her, kiss her. And he says, yeah, sure, I'll kiss her. That sounds great. <laughs> Although I do enjoy the fact that the one little kid in the front yes. like, no, Spider-Man, <laughs> don't do it. Say it ain't so. <laughs> listen to the small child. Please just listen to the small child. He can make better decisions than you can. I think it's supposed to be partially meant as the kid doesn't want to see the gross kiss, but it's also yeah. like, no, don't do it. You're going to ruin your life, Spider-Man. He says what we are thinking. The kid yeah. is right. Um, except the kid. for the grossness Always listen of to the, the kids. He stinks and I don't like him. <laughs> I, like the, there, there are various elements of this scene that I, that I find bizarre and that, and that lead me to where I got to in rewatching this movie, realizing I think I hate this iteration of Peter Parker. Um, he's, 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 he's saddled with, bizarre leaps of logic that don't agree with things that we've seen happen previously. Uh, you have to headcanon so much to just make basic sense of, of why different characters are doing things. Um, but, you know, it, it, I, I thought it was hilarious that we had the the Sony Spider-Man font uh, surrounding yes. the World Unity, you know, replacement stage, you know, Spider-Man yes. Day thing. <laughs> they are really trying to make that font happen, like really trying to make that font happen in the third movie. And, and that's great. You know, who cares? But I, Spider-Man says Shazam again. Um, when he shows up, it's also the PlayStation three font. It should it be is. Noticed, which, Oh yeah, there we go. That's why they were trying to seed it early on that it was originally the Spider-Man font. And then they used it for PlayStation three. We should have seen the, the, the Sony connected universe coming together earlier on. Um, but that, that, that small child who, who just tells him not to do it. That small child is the hero of the movie, and this is his only uh-huh. scene. Okay. <laughs> don't do it. You can't. Don't no, do it. don't do it. Plus, um, I also know you're Peter Parker. Everyone does. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Everyone except Aunt May, and even she has an idea it might be you. She knows. <laughs> she really does. Oh, by the way, but while this is happening, 
uh, Marco is wandering around very nearby because the city is only a block, a square block in size. <laughs> and uh, he is spotted by the cops. I take it back. This is where he's spotted by the cops who say, hey, it's that guy what escaped. And he and he runs. And uh, But you know what he's next to when he's spotted by the cops? A truck full of sand. sand. Wow. It's true. It's true. There's There happens to be a truck full of sand right next to where he's spotted. It's great. Good for him. Uh, that was, <laughs> you know, you know the other coincidence that happens in this what? scene. Harry Osborn, of course, he's going to go. He loves Spider Man. Spider Man's great. He's completely forgotten that he hates Spider Man. But on top of that, just coincidentally, did you know that Harry Osborn was a budding playwright in high school? Oh sure. This, yeah. Harry, this Harry Osborn, how 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 like him to have written a play for Mary Jane in high school? How completely consistent yeah. with everything that has happened in this totally. in this uh, world of movies so far. Totally. In fact, Peter was um was, had a copy of that in his backpack when uh, Uncle Ben was killed by Flint Marco. Oh that my also God! Is a it thing all that totally it, happened in it all. It, it's all it, you know. Follow follow the money. Follow yeah, the it, playwrights. It, is, it doesn't really hold up when you watch these three movies in a row. Um, hey, you know what is unusual in in New York City? A sandstorm, and yet in the middle of this, a sandstorm kind of blows by. Well, it's really more of an urban haboob, I think. <laughs> You're right. To be fair, you could argue that with the, with the level of wind and the level of sand, it could be considered a haboob. Uh, but that would make him haboob man, which I don't like so much. So we'll say, don't with, you? Because I do. <laughs> we'll stick with Sandstorm. Uh, I want to point out one thing that happens in this action scene with um, with uh, Spider-Man's first kind of face-off with the Sandman, which is uh, a a door, like a like a hood, or is it the back of an armored car? Anyway, there's a door that blows off, or, or, or maybe it's a car hood, and Spider-Man stands on it and basically surfs on it for a little bit. And I thought to myself, oh, good. Batman and Robin has come back where the we, we once again have some more totally extreme uh, surfing happening from our hero. So, yeah. Anyway, Spider-Man in the end says, uh, you know, where these where did all these guys come from as he pours sand out of his mask and his boots because he's, uh, he's he's been sandblasted by the sand. By, sorry, by uh, urban haboob man. <laughs> Something I wanted to mention in that uh, that previous action scene that's actually in all three movies is anytime there's something that like smashes into a car or a car that smashes into something else, it's it's fantastically visceral whenever anything like that happens. I mean, they, they do such a good job of, of not making it look like somebody flipped over a model car. It's like it feels like something smashed into a car. Uh, and I think like it, there's a scene where one of the police officers gets thrown into a car windshield and it's like, oh, wow, that looks like it really, really hurt. That guy is totally dead. And uh, it's, you know, there are so many things that don't work, but but whenever they have something that's going on downtown and you got cars flipping over and stuff, it, it feels exactly right to me. They never talk about all the police officers who got killed in yeah. the chase, right? It's like, a fair number. What about, you know, when uh, like an entire like, you know, slab of a skyscraper breaks up over the sidewalk, you know, you get the girl, but what about like the hundred pieces of like absolutely lethal, you know, things falling on the ground that are going to kill the people down there. And there are a lot of scenes of those things like landing in a crowd that look terrifying too. I mean, that's, it's another one of those things where everything just feels like it's got weight and it looks dangerous. Forget the logic. I think one of the most horrifying things alongside the web fluid thing in the same genre of horrifying thing is, is Spider-Man having bits of Sandman inside his clothes (laughs) and not being grossed out about this. All right. 
That's that's fair. That's fair. It w- wouldn't it be something if like the sand came to life and then the like the the goo from the meteor like came over to it and they like had a conversation, but that doesn't happen. It would be more interesting <laughs> than this movie. I, but my biggest problem with this movie is I I don't like Sandman. Oh, he gets yeah. everywhere. Yeah, He's yeah. coarse. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, Bruce Campbell is once again, uh, ha- has his little part that Sam Raimi puts his buddy in. He's a snobby, uh, maitre d' in this, uh, instead of a, a snobby usher. And he's going to be very helpful. He's French to Peter. When I am he French, pops- you know. I am French. It's, yeah. he, says, he says it with emphasis. Like he, he's really trying to convince him of yeah. something, which makes, yeah. th- this is my pet theory is that he's been the same guy all three times. He got fired by the wrestling promotion. And so he's doing this terrible usher job. He treats Peter Parker like garbage. And then he gets fired from that job when that play closes. And then he gets a job as a major D because he fakes being French. Yes. He recognizes Peter and he goes, you know what? I've got to get this kid's back. I've messed up this kid's life. <laughs> yeah. This poor kid. Yeah. I've got to do something nice for him. You're going to do the question. Eh? Here, here is my, my character. I'm going to play a maitre d'. Here's the angle I'm going to take. I am French. <laughs> this is a French restaurant, after if all. If you say it enough, it's true. It's yeah. it's an ancient French legend. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I honestly was expecting the snooty usher treatment for uh, for you know, Peter, when he walked in and the, the maitre d' is calling him back and asking him if he has a reservation, I thought, oh, this isn't going to yeah. go so well. And it was, it, it just made me happy that, you know, it sort of turned around no, to... The, the like, comedy bit is that they're like, they keep trying to bring the ring to him. And he's like, no, no, not yet. Yeah, no, no, not that yet. That part is really funny. But I was just happy that the, that the uh, maitre d', instead of being a jerk to him, it was actually going to help him He's gonna help. Uh, pull off his his thing which of course couldn't be done yeah because peter uh once again makes it all about him so th- this comes back to again either peter is a jerk because being a successful spider-man has gone to his head or peter is a jerk because he has this weird alien symbiote living near him and it's making already affecting him and making him bad I don't know if this movie really makes it clear whether it's one or the other, but either way, he's totally a jerk. And in in this proposal scene, he makes it all about him. And Mary Jane finally says, you know, forget it. And she takes off because he's awful. He pretty much is. Although I do feel for him a little bit at the very end when he's fishing the ring out of the champagne <laughs> yeah. with Badly. a fork. Yeah. With a fork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. No, I, I don't feel bad for him at all. He just <laughs> I, like, I mean, I, I would say that the, the Spider-Man celebration scene is the turning point for me where I just I just don't like him for the whole rest of the movie. And I don't feel sorry for him. I almost start to feel more <laughs> sorry for Eddie Brock than I do Peter Parker by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Yeah. Almost. I didn't say I did. I say almost. <laughs> he's yeah. definitely he's definitely a jerk. And I think probably a lot of the hate for this movie comes from the fact that not everybody was dreaming of a movie where Peter Parker is a jerk for 90 percent of it. Sure. Um, but it, his jerkism is a little bit understandable. He's never been beloved by anybody. And now like the whole yeah, whole city of Manhattan is, you know, on his side. And all four blocks of it. Plumping all four blocks, all eight people. <laughs> uh-huh. All eight of those people love him. They love him, except four, for Jonah. All four blocks until yeah. they're all destroyed. Seven of Not the enough eight. to stick around for the next time the, the, billboard, uh, the billboard recycles and, and plays uh, Spider-Man again. But yeah. Uh, yeah, they all love him, and he's, <laughs> he's, he's not equipped to deal with it. 
So I kind of get that a little bit. I think they maybe push it a little too far. Yeah. Um, but I, I have some sympathy for his character here. Yeah, he, do, he doesn't... I guess the, my problem with it is not that the idea that he doesn't know how to deal with success, but that I don't think I actually see him actually not knowing how to deal with success. He's just kind of immediately just totally full of himself and a jerk. Well, so far he's shown that he doesn't know how to deal with much of anything in his personal life. So this doesn't shock me. He's incapable. He really comes off like a middle-aged man-child when Gwen shows up. (laughs) And... And like I mean, that's what really turned me on this. Where where it's if he is so incredibly in love with Mary Jane and so happy about asking her to marry him and everything, and and we delete you know the headcanon that we that we kind of assume uh, is in there that somehow the symbiote's uh, you know nudging him in the direction of being a jerk. We forget that for a moment. Just the the way that he's conducted himself with Gwen as his classmate, this, you know, attractive young woman that he, you know, goes and like, he's just not processing the fact that this is maybe not a, a, a conversation that he should just let go as long as he does at the dinner where he's going to propose to his girlfriend. Right. Um, it, it just, you know, the, 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 the friendship and history that he has with this other woman before the thing fell out of the sky while they were laying in a, in a body fluid web, um, <laughs> before any of that happened, he, he, he effectively had the like Archie, Betty and Veronica kind of thing of, Oh, Oh, uh, golly. I thought that was just totally normal to hang out with and be chummy with this person that you did not know existed. Oh, so I'm going to ask you to marry me in about 90 seconds. <laughs> this is where we get the big retcon, which is, it turns out that Marco is the guy who shot uncle Ben, not, uh, the random dude who we saw in the first movie that they were like partners in crime and they met at the car and it doesn't make any real sense except that they want to give more weight to Marco's backstory and have it tie in with Peter. The scene that we see, which I will admit is sort of somebody's vision of what happened and not necessarily what actually happened is uh, this bizarre scene where Marco sort of just, shoots uncle ben for no good reason um like well he's there's an old man here i guess i will shoot him and this is this is uh led to you know we get the information that it turns out this escaped guy jason it should be pointed out that he has a dying daughter that is true you make a great point steve uh-huh. his daughter is very sick he has no choice so uh i don't like this like Again, having just seen that first movie, I don't think it makes any sense. Oh, no, a second guy was there and he actually shot your uncle, not me. Yeah, I, I'm not into Oliver Stone's Spider-Man 3. Uh, and, you know, like, I mean, that's a bit of a stretch that for me. That was one and th- magic bullet to bounce off of the car <laughs> door and hit Uncle Ben. I just don't think, I don't believe it. it. It just surprises me that nobody informed anybody involved in writing the scripts that not every villain has to be like a direct line to Peter Parker. Personally connected to yeah. Peter Parker. You could just have Marco be a dude with the dying daughter who turns to a life of crime. He doesn't have to be directly associated with the Uncle Ben murder. It's ridiculous. Yeah, he has magic powers. That's all we need. We don't really need him to be Uncle Ben's real killer. And it's yeah. it's a, a major eye-rolling moment in a movie that is full of them. But it just goes back to the fact that if if Peter, if Spider-Man wasn't around making bad guys, he wouldn't be needed to fight bad guys. Yeah, I suppose. When when they actually, when they named the original mugger as if we're supposed to remember his name, like the iconic Bernard the Butler. Yes, right. <laughs> and of course, we don't remember that dude's regular name. And then shortly after that, you know, uh, uh, Mary Jane comes to see uh, Peter in his apartment 
and and refers to May as Aunt May. Like like if she said if she just said May, we wouldn't get who she was talking yeah. about. She calls someone who is not her aunt. She's aunt everybody's May. Aunt May, though. I, I I don't have a problem with that. She's everybody's She's, Aunt May. That's that's America's aunt. Right I, there. I do though have have to point out that what you're referring to is that the robber is uh is known as we all knew all along as Dennis Carradine. One of the least known of the Carradines. That was a Carradine? Uh, well, no, the character's named Carradine. So I think oh. in the <laughs> Spider-Man universe, John Carradine had a son who turned to a life of crime and, and killed Uncle Ben, except turns out maybe didn't kill Uncle Ben. Just was an accessory in the crime. Yeah, it's really good stuff. Anyway, there's more. There's more. P- MJ. What? There's more? MJ comes to Peter's door to say that I know we just had a big fight, but I'm concerned about you because I, I talked to Aunt May, and uh, which we all call Aunt May, even though she's not our aunt. And uh, and uh, this is very upsetting <laughs> that the real killer is somebody who uh, is not who you thought it was and that they've escaped and all of that. And Peter is uh, gets to be his mopey best, like at the end of the first movie, and be like, I don't really need any help. Oh, I just can't. I must be alone, which is super annoying. But don't don't worry. Peter will get better because he's about to get swallowed in a giant ball of alien goo and become mm. black-suited Spider-Man. How do you like it, Peter? Yeah, finally, Peter's subjected to somebody else's fluids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, guys. I'm, I'm sorry. The jokes are right there. If I don't say them, Steve will. That's probably going to happen. In, there's a lot of gross organic goo in these movies um in the comics spider-man turns from his blue and red suit to this weird black suit with white eyes um and i I, watching this movie i'm always disappointed because the black suit is just the other suit colored black it it doesn't have anything different about it the the spider the black spider-man suit in the comics was like this totally different thing it was just almost featureless except for the big white eyes and the, the big spider and this one is just uh it's just the same suit yeah it doesn't seem like the alien entity would necessarily want to duplicate the logo on the front of the, uh, <laughs> and all Spider-Man the little suit. raised webbing patterns but it does yeah. it, du- it duplicates them all and now he's a black suited spider-man and he's just uh you know it's just a suit that he can literally also he can just take it off one of the cool things about the spider suit the symbiote suit anyway in the comics was that it was like this weird thing that would like flow onto him and flow off of him and it was like a super awesome thing this is an alien has come from outer space it has taken over one of our fine superheroes and it's decided to just act like a piece of clothing you know (laughs) this entire movie could have been saved had the symbiote decided to duplicate his original costume from the wrestling scene (laughs) well jason you're you're also you're also discounting the the advantage given to spider-man having exactly the same toys be able to be made in a different color without having to pay for a new machining uh, process. Yeah, well, you may, you may make a good <laughs> I point mean, th- there. Think, think of the savings for Spider-Man, Jason. So uh, my notes get a little sketchy at this point because we're getting very close to the point where I um, grew angry at this movie and realized why I don't like it. But um, <laughs> is, we, is it because you saw Kurt Connors again and you were reminded that we never got to see Dylan Baker play the lizard? No, but it is because Dylan Baker gives a very scientific analysis of what is in the goo that makes up the spider suit, which is it's a symbiote. Sure. Good. Good to know. He ran the test. Peter is majoring in science, science, (laughs) the science kind of science, science, as established in the previous film. Scientific analysis. It's a symbiote. Now we know. You need scientists around to warn you, don't touch that goo. (laughs) Very important. 
I, I did appreciate that he said that now I'm not a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> no. But this is a symbiote. That was, like, that was splitting hairs. That's splitting hairs in a superhero movie. He's a professional Scientologist, <laughs> yeah. and it's outside his area of expertise. I ran this through the symbiote checker, and it is one. Yep. So now ding. you know. Don't touch that goo. It is literally just a black suit in a footlocker. You locker. already touched the goo? Dang it. I'm too late. So Peter takes to wearing it like a hoodie almost. He's got it under his, uh, he's got his under his coat. Count the coats, count the suits. He's got, I don't know, he's wearing it at all times like long johns. Um, He, and then, and now we get, uh, we're going into dark Peter mode. Yes. No, it's it's fallout Peter. Yeah. He breaks Uh, Eddie Brock's camera. Uh, That's not nice. Um, He's, that's very mean to break your, your competitor's camera. Yeah. To which he responds, what the hell? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um he we we get another fight scene with sandman um they fight in the subways except that in this universe not only do they have elevated trains they also have the subways running in this strange kind of like overlaid bottomless pit where you can fall many stories past the train tracks into an underground I don't know why. There's water at the bottom. It turns out water, as we, again, we all know from making sandcastles, water has some limitations on the Sandman. Gary, we, Gary, we need to run the trains on the abandoned tracks today. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like. Yeah. The fight scene's not that bad. The location is nonsensical. Uh, anyway, it's, a, it's another kind of like a, just a skirmish between uh, Peter and Marco in order to keep our, basically to keep the audience awake. So that happens. Uh, I think. Hopefully you were awake for that part. Um, mm. We get a little Ilya Baskin, a little reprise of our favorite line from the second movie, Rent! <laughs> that, that iconic Spider-Man catchphrase. Yep. And, and this is how we know that uh, that this is really the darkest Peter, because uh, he he yells at Ilya Baskin, and that's that's just not right. It's not cool, according to uh, Ursula. Yeah, I really like that scene, though, because although Elia Baskin is always kind of gruff toward Peter and he wants the rent and he goes in the bathroom when Peter's waiting to go in the bathroom because he hasn't paid the rent and all of that, when Peter yells at him about the door not working, which we've seen throughout this movie, which includes a a great scene where Peter pulls the doorknob off and then can't put it back on and there's a nice bit of business about that. Pushes the other doorknob off the other side. Yeah, I like that part. But what's nice is he does all this and he lashes out at Elia Baskin and then immediately he turns to Ursula and he's like he's normally a nice kid I'm worried about him and it's like it's yeah, so sweet he's a good boy it's like yeah he's yeah. a good boy it's like he he's gruff to him because he wants him to pay his rent but in fact he he's judge Peter he knows he's a good guy and he's taken aback well and he also knows he's Spider-Man just like the rest of the well, city okay yeah and in, in that one line Ilya Baskin gets to do the best acting in the movie well next to the kid who tells him not to do it he's good boy <laughs> he ate that yellow cake you made and called it chocolate <laughs> He's a good boy. <laughs> Jason, I wasn't saying it set a high bar for acting as a profession. I just said it was the best acting in the movie. Um, what a good boy, he. Other things that happen in this section of the movie, Aunt May does, tells uh, Peter she does not want revenge on the guy who killed Uncle Ben, which is uh, trying to reach for a little important theme here about getting revenge is not necessary. She doesn't want that. Mary Jane takes a job as a singing waitress in a bar and calls Harry to talk. Harry and Mary Jane have fun. Uh, at least until it gets real awkward between them. And then Harry has a lot of visions of uh, Norman Osborn, at which point he kidnaps her, makes her call Peter, go to a bridge. She breaks up with him. Uh, 
uh, Harry says that he's the one who's actually going out with her. And this is the thing that finally pushes Peter fully out into uh, emo Peter Parker mode. See, and it, you, you know because his frontal hair gets progressively more in his eyes yeah. and his eyeliner <laughs> oh, yeah. gets darker and deeper. His frontal hair gets yet more frontal. Not every symbiote is going to make your hair tweak out like that. You know, you, only the good ones. You say fallout, Peter, but I think it's more Peter at the disco. Really? I was I was going to go with Jimmy Eat Peter. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> so the, the really awkward thing for me is that we go from from Peter at the disco to Peter talking to Aunt May and his hair is fine. And then we we, we that we is not an emo and, band. Yeah, no, exactly. That's the problem is Although it's not it an emo be. band and it just doesn't match right. Um, I, you know, conceptually, I'm not I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not down on the concept of emo Peter being a result of the symbiote messing with him. I think that makes sense. The actual implementation of it, it just, it, it's, I, this is where I, I should bring up the editor's cut of the movie that I've seen. It came out a couple of years ago when they did a new re-release of the movie, and they let the editor go in and just tweak a bunch of stuff in the movie. And the notorious scene that is to come, there, it's a slightly different edit, and it's not as bad, bizarrely enough. Um, and of all things, the editor's cut is shorter than the theatrical <laughs> cut. And it's just a ton of different choices in different parts of the movie that don't make it a good movie, but make things like this section of the movie that we're going into just flow a little bit better and feel a little bit more logical. Uh, but it, it can't it can't fix all of the massive narrative problems in the movie. Um, you know, they they tried to make a better version of this movie and it is a little bit better, but it doesn't save it. Uh, there's not enough Bernard, if you ask me. Quickly in succession here, too. Uh, Peter and Harry have a fight in the mansion. Bernard's going to have to clean all that up, people. Uh, <laughs> Eddie Brock ends up with a shot of Spidey outside a bank that he's doctored to show that Spidey is a villain. Uh, Peter realizes that this is a fake and that he's touched it up and he has the proof and he ruins Eddie and gets him fired by revealing this, which is what we said earlier, which is this is in a moment where we're supposed to start thinking, wow, Peter's really a jerk and he's turning bad. He does the right thing in turning in Eddie, who has proven himself really gross and a jerk and even worse now also is generating fake photos and selling them to the Daily Bugle. Uh, that all happens here. But, you know, you may be saying, I don't really remember those things happening in the movie. That's because you probably only remember what happens next, which is there is a lengthy scene where Peter walks super cool. He doesn't walk super cool. I think that's being incredibly generous. He walks what he thinks is super cool. He talks like a, a movie gangster from a movie from like a movie from the 30s or 40s. He can play the piano in a scene that f made me wonder if I was watching The Mask instead of Spider-Man 3. <laughs> I wrote down the phrase, I hate this movie with my entire soul at this point. He then hits Mary Jane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the completing the utter rapid character assassination of Peter Parker. Uh, and yeah. Uh, this is also the place where all of the animated GIFs were made of, uh, you know, him dancing and walking around and doing the thing outside that store as people watch him. And uh, it's super gross and awful and I hate it and I get what they're trying to do and yet I hate it. So I had always heard about this much maligned dancing scene. This was the first I had seen Spider-Man 3 a couple of nights ago. Um, so I was expecting a fairly awful thing to be presented with. Uh, I think it's my favorite thing in the movie. 
<laughs> I know? think it is it, up until the scene at the jazz club, which is which is fairly awful and difficult to yeah. watch for a variety of reasons. Although up to a certain point, it's kind of entertaining. But he's just he, he becomes so unredeemable uh, midway through and that. It's the mask, right? Like it's so it's so over the top that it, it it's literally a scene from the mask. It's it's it is. But mm. but the scenes where he's walking down the street thinking he is the Naz doing his little <laughs> dance, doing the double guns at the ladies as they walk by, I think is utterly hilarious because he's clearly not supposed to be looking cool and everyone yeah. who passes him on the street with the exception of Betty Brant who's strangely intrigued She's by into him. it. Yeah. We fi- we finally figured out what Betty Brant really likes. So this is this is the the thing Steve. I think in isolation that stuff is funny because it's it, he's totally not cool. But mm-hmm. the the stuff in the club where he's like talking like a gangster and whispering stuff and playing the piano and uh and all of that is like that I don't know where that's from. That's like from another movie. So it's like, and and I think this is the inconsistent tone that bothers me the most. Is like, are we laughing at him, or is he the guy who can just sit down and play a a song in a club and take over for his girlfriend? Like, which one is it? At this point in the movie, they they managed to make me feel bad for Harry Osborne and make him make James Franco of all people come off as charming, which I find astonishing. Well, they finally pulled that off in the worst way possible, but they did it. In the it. worst way possible. And then and then he goes for his beaker of whiskey that he just, you know, takes a takes a, a long drag off of when he needs his father to speak to him telepa- telepathically <laughs> from beyond the grave. And then at the same time, we've got we've got for me, like the culmination of what makes the emo Peter thing turn me on this whole series of three movies is when he hits Mary Jane. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's just it just doesn't. I, I'm sorry. Like, that's a point of no return for me. Um, you know, when they made the decision in the comics to have Ant-Man punch the wasp, nope, sorry, that, nope, nope, nope. Find a way to make that like an alternate universe, an alternate dimension or something like that. Only if you delete that from the continuity of it, uh, you know, with a movie, you can't really do that. It's, I mean, that, it, that, that, that was the part too far where I'm like, well, I guess I hate this version of Peter. Yeah, I think one of my biggest problems with the movie is, um, whereas in Spider-Man 2, it was filled with humor. And they managed to like really weave it nicely in with the plot elements. Here, there are long stretches where the humor is just non-existent. I mean, it's almost dour. It's it's more similar to the first movie than than the second one. But also, you know, interspersed between these long stretches where it's not very funny, they've got these just wacky slapstick scenes, uh, you know, splatted up in the middle of it, and they sit so poorly alongside the rest of the movie um that it's like well you know somebody could have spent some extra time to uh to make this tone more consistent uh, but obviously they didn't care enough to 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 do that so you know that's that's a that's probably the biggest issue for me because that again that was one of my favorite things about the second movie there were a lot of moments in that that were funny and even amidst like the 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 everybody's in peril scenes that you know the big uh, action scenes and everything they were dropping some pretty funny stuff mm-hmm. and here it's like oh man i'm not enjoying watching these people go about their miserable lives and then oh hey it's now it's wow and how it's like uh <laughs> Yeah, it's just it, it, everything's turning on a dime, and uh, it's not great. It seems desperate almost. <laughs> yeah, it does. You're right because it's 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 also it's dra- really dragging the movie out at this point. I think aren't we like an hour and a half into it? Yeah. Um, and nothing has really happened yet. Like I don't, you don't, you're not at all close to like having like what I would consider like the meat of the movie to happen. You right. know where. 
uh, where he comes back from this and, 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 and knowing that, you know, the, the whole time that, um, you know, Topher Grace is going to be Venom and he still hasn't, that hasn't even happened yet. You know, it's, so how much time is going to be allotted to these villains, you know, to, to wrap them up at this yeah. point? Yeah. They just tried to pack way too much in. Yeah, for sure. Such that I mean, I mean, we're only barely hitting each of these plot points, and yet we're what an hour and twenty minutes into this yeah. discussion, and we're only partway through the film. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're we're about to get to the like the big the big finish, but we do have to have this moment. This is your pivot point, which is now Peter is is almost irredeemable, except that there's the big out, which is that it's not him; it's the it's the the symbiote suit. Um, it's the monster inside him. It's it's his rage syndrome. Well, yeah, and remember they don't shy from that. They do point out that this that the suit only amplifies character traits that were already there, and we've seen yeah, him being exactly. able the whole movie. You know, it's just this pushed him too far. So this is the point to Gene's point where the movie really does try to kick it into gear, and um, but there's only like a half an hour left, so it's all going to be very rushed, and it leads to one of the scenes that I find the most perplexing, the most law of economy of characters and and locations in this entire movie, which is that Peter ends up in a church with bells where he's frustrated and he starts to rip off the, the suit. Now in the comics, it's discovered that the suit is, is, and, and we discover it later here is affected by loud noises. And that's how you can beat the symbiote. But Peter's just, I don't know, hanging out in a belfry and and guess what? Eddie Brock happens to be praying in the church right below when all of this is going on for his death. Yeah, yeah. That just the whole. Also, just bringing in like you know holy water and like everything. Like really, like these, we don't think of these characters as going to church that way, you know. And and he's especially not him. So it just seemed really. Well, he's really he's hit rock bottom now. The writers went. We're writing Daredevil, right? The guy that goes to church a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's send him to church. Why not? Yeah. So he's down there, and then this leads to, of course, the handoff where Peter rips the the costume off of him into a blob for, I would say, unclear reasons and unclear why he's there. Um, but it ends up the blob falls down and takes over Eddie, who is ready to do, you know, his he's got lots of darkness, so he's ready to do some damage. He then gets in the supervillain like white pages and goes to Flint Marco <laughs> and says, I got a plan. And and this scene, so one of the things that this angers me about this scene, in addition to the fact that it's a ridiculous set of coincidences, is there's no better point in this movie to make it clear that Venom has no purpose in this movie, should not be in this movie, and is only in this movie because somebody, Avi Arad probably, said, oh, but all the kids who read comics in the 90s think Venom is super cool and ugly and violent and an anti-hero, and that's awesome. We should put it in the movie. And Sam Raimi's heart's not in it. It's absolutely true. It, it's it's super pandering to people who like this character, who is a kind of unpleasant character. It doesn't fit in the movie at all, but we got to get, we got to play our venom. And if I had to point to the single thing that breaks this movie and makes it terrible, I would say it's the existence of venom in this movie. It doesn't need to be yeah. here. It is a waste of everybody's time. This movie is two different movies, neither of which are great or even necessarily good in either case, welded together in the most awkward way possible. Like somebody just, they went, you know what? Let's not use the blowtorch. Let's use crazy glue. Let's just see how well it comes together. So Venom's gross and weird. 
um, the there's a sudden team up with Flint. Why does Flint go along with it? You know, his daughter is very sick. Um, he has no choice. And then we get a really <laughs> spectacular set of fake TV news things. Poor Hal Fishman is just oh, what yeah. I wrote in my notes. Poor some, Hal some Fishman. Some of the worst TV, fake TV news dialogue and and the yeah. way it's shot that I've ever seen in a movie. It's so bad. It's so fake. Uh, they're setting up the whole Mary Jane has been taken. She's in distress. It's a, it's a real shorthand because they've run out of time. They, they're trying to get the plot to its resolution now. And they've waited so long that they have to shorthand it with this really bad uh, TV stuff. And they got an actual newsman to, to, yeah. to perform these lines for, for Verity's sake. And... Uh, well, first of all, it's a, it's major dissonance for me because Hal Fishman was an L.A. icon. Yes. He should not be doing news in New York. In New York, no. I agree. And so why are you going to have him there? Why are you going to call him Hal Fishman and not something else just to make it even weirder? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's it's a wreck. And uh, he died this same year, probably from shame. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, though, seriously, if you're if you're a connoisseur of like bad newspaper headlines and bad fake TV news and movies, you should probably look at this scene in Spider-Man Three. It is spectacularly bad. Like, this is this is a TV news moment scripted and shot and edited by people who apparently get their news from newspapers because there is it's not like that at all. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Um, but we have to move on to to the uh, Osborne Mansion where Peter goes to Harry. Harry uh, has all of his scars from the previous fight have healed very rapidly. I'm not quite sure how that's possible. Does the Goblin? Well, Jason, he, he's got new scar. He's got new scars. He's about to get, so they got to get the old ones out of the way. I I don't know, but he's got, it, it just. I figured like well, he remember he's been be, huffing the super serum. Yeah, he should know, still be so. raw though. I think, but yeah, maybe he's just super healed and super fast scarred. But this is beside the point because it's time for Bernard at last to take center stage <laughs> Bernard the butler where he steps up and says, you know how they retconned uncle Ben's murder earlier? <laughs> well, I am a witness that wasn't there and I saw the first movie and I can tell you, Harry, Spider-Man didn't do all those things you did. It was your father. I saw it all. Your father killed himself when they fought in that church where I wasn't. And (laughs) Spider-Man didn't do it. And I've buried 14 goblins. 14 greens goblin, yes. (laughs) Well, Harry... I am the best actor they could get for this part. <laughs> I have buried fourteen of the Greens Goblin. Deus ex Bernard, yep. and uh, it's it's even worse uh, than that though. It's not I happened to be in the room when when uh, your father died. It's like I dressed his wounds, and with my heretofore unknown forensic knowledge, I determined <laughs> that it could only have yes. been made by the front right blade of his glider, which I knew about too, totally because I clean in there. <laughs> I've seen a lot of things in this mansion. I want to. I want to be very clear that you know I, I actually hold a great deal of affection for this actor who plays Bernard the Butler because he gave me respite when I had none. When I had no air, he gave me breath because he is he is the archetypically perfect, like seventy eight year old man that is cast in the community theater production of like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum who can't remember his lines. Or, like I, I could have sworn he said the word line at some point. I just expected him to like ask for a line from off uh, from off camera at some at some point. Uh, he he is so charming. He is so unlike everything else in the movie. Yeah, he's Bernard. He's Bernard the Butler. <laughs> he's Bernard the Butler. That's that. See, that's when Stan Lee should walk on and say, "Enough said." Is right after Bernard <laughs> right. dropped his lines. Even if you 
discount like the the whole retconning, just the whole idea that this butler was close to the family, you know, that close, you know, to his father and close to the son where he, and that the the son would even listen to him because up until now, it's been nothing. Like, just, you know, no relationship really hinted at at all. I've loved you and your father and you love your best friends and ever since your parents were murdered in that alley wait wrong butler <laughs> and of course you remember seeing this in the previous films that we oh no those scenes were removed at the last moment well anyway you're going to have to take my word for it there's a lot of love here I assure here. you I was there Th- this scene more than anything really sells just how valuable Alfred Pennyworth is so Harry is going to uh probably help out but uh first jonah jameson buys a camera from a little girl for a hundred bucks it doesn't have any film in it (laughs) films extra yep uh you know i'm gonna give it to the jonah jameson scenes it's kind of it's fun he doesn't well this is one of those scenes that worked well in the first movie you know it's it's in the middle of the action scene and they drop a pretty funny scene where jay jonah gets slammed it's it's good and sandman in this so this is the big fight at where mary jane is in in uh, in trouble at the uh, you know she's being held at this building site or something. Sandman is at, at this point. Sandman is just a big pile of sand that is rampaging. He's basically Godzilla. He's like not a human being at this point. He's just more like a giant rampaging monster. And then Venom is doing bad things, but is also kind of a cipher, which is one of the problems I think with these, this climactic fight scene is that Sandman we've gotten to know as a person and he's sort of not a person here and Venom is nothing. And they're the ones who are, are, uh, are fighting it out with, uh, with Spider-Man here. And also a, um, is it the same, taxi cab that keeps falling and almost crushing Mary Jane or is there a long is there like a dispenser of taxi cabs at the top of the building that keep coming down to, to almost hit Mary Jane I couldn't Jane? figure that out there's a lot well, of cabs within, within, the, within the four block radius of this movie the, the cab has a lot of cabs the maybe. cab garage no the cab garage is right there uh, you know in the fourth <laughs> quadrant that we're just getting maybe to the, maybe the urban haboob is lifting cabs high into the air and then they it come crashing be. down and then Mary Jane has to dodge them because there's, again, there are like at least three times where a cab comes from above and she has to get out of the way of it. Now, remind me, were the cinder blocks in the cab already or did they get habooed up there? Or what? What? <laughs> there was a truck. There was one truck. Yeah, the oh, that's right. Truck. And yeah. that had cinder blocks. And it dropped cinder blocks into the cab. Yeah. It's smashing the roof off in yet another very effective car, car damage scene. Yeah. If the cinder blocks uh, were made of sand, would Marco be able to take them over? Oh, interesting. It's not that interesting. No, actually, it's not. (laughs) There's nothing interesting about Sandman and his powers. Yeah, I almost went, well, technically speaking, and and, uh, getting ready to hold forth on the sand content of cement and concrete. And and why? Why why think that much about this movie at this point? No, but he he is Godzilla-ing it up, which I, I, again, I find... uh, kind of a weird uh we do we get that sound that uh sound it's like oh yeah these loud noises uh can make the the venom suit angry that's a good uh a good little uh little tip harry comes and does save the day at one point but he uh but he's horribly wounded in the process and once again is almost yet not quite dead so, so uh, hang on for that because Peter is going to build a tuning fork out of metal tubes and use it to play a song or 
in this case, uh, you know, knock off the symbiote off of Eddie, but Eddie can't imagine life without the symbiote or I guess something like that. All I know, it's not really explained. He just dives for the symbiote and then there's a there's a grenade and it blows up and that's the end of Eddie Brock and the symbiote. Jason, to, to be fair, I, I think I've been very critical of this movie so far, but I, I want to give credit where it's due. If Peter didn't study generalized science at the science college yeah. as intently as he did, I don't think he could have built that tuning fork. So I feel like the fidelity to the comics, you know, it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the best part of this scene aside from the fact that it's the end of venom, which is arguably the worst part of this movie. Well, Dylan Baker did a whole uh, science class about tuning forks yeah. <laughs> at, at the science school. And, and the bullies were, I'm, were, I'm not an audiologist, but uh... <laughs> the, the bullies were laughing it up in the back and Gwen Stacy was taking notes in the front and Peter was in the middle nodding. And uh, and then that came back to him in this moment. Well, he, he knew everything about the acoustics of the theater where Mary Jane was uh, uh, performing. Peter, like, such a know-in-all, such a nerd. Yeah. Um. So so we get our our human moment here, which is that um, Marco is now human again. He says he didn't want any of this. Uh, I yes, I shot your. Have I mentioned my dying daughter? Yes, my daughter is very sick. Uh, I had no choice. I had no choice. I was scared, he says. And this is an explanation for literally there is a helpless old man laying on the concrete and he just shoots him in cold blood um, because he was scared. Well, because he thought Guy Fieri was running up behind him and that freaked him out. <laughs> but it's not. It's a carradine. It was just a carradine. <laughs> that might be even worse. <laughs> so uh, and, and in this flashback, what we see is something that's actually different from we saw earlier. So I guess the one we saw earlier was an artist's impression or an imagination of Peter. And this is supposedly Marco's real interpretation of it, which is not great. And Peter, uh, thinking back to that scene with Aunt May where she said she doesn't want revenge, tells Marco, I forgive you, which is a nice sentiment. And I understand why it's here. It is utterly unearned by this movie. It's just there because they feel like that should be a good beat in the movie is to have him say that but and it makes me wonder if the the, the things that would have earned that sentiment were cut out in favor mm. of the venom stuff. A venom could like, be was there was there a decent sandman movie in this at one point i think there could have i been. think there could have been i think the pieces are there right like doc ock he is a tragic figure he is the you know kind of the architect of his own doom but at the same time he re- he has regrets um he he stands up for and takes responsibility when in the end when it's required uh we get the little pieces of it right and this is a good example of that which is the you know i was scared i made a terrible mistake i forgive you like a better movie that could have been earned but this is not that movie this doesn't do it i i wanted him they, they say goodbye and i really wanted the last line of the sandman being like if you ever need me just go to the beach i'll be there <laughs> yeah also i'm still in your underwear a little bit <laughs> there's a little bit of me in the toe part of both of your shoes you'll never get me out just lean into your shoe and blow i'll be with you forever spider-man this really could have all been avoided too if he had, he, he had a really legitimate uh, uh, liability suit against the demolecularization. Oh yeah, the bad lab people, <laughs> and you know they could have just sued them, and then he would have had the money he needed, and he could have been like, a, like a celebrity sort of super 
whatever, super-powered celebrity. If only he'd fallen into that salad spinner pit before he accidentally killed Ben Parker. Then it would have been okay. Before he got retconned into killing Ben Parker. If only he'd sued Allied Transmogrification. Yeah, don't step into the retcon. That's really the key here. Is that he was it. fine until he got retconned into being a murderer. Stay away from the retcon. Um, the, uh, Harry, by the way, still very, very slowly dying, but he dies slowly enough that Peter can go and that Peter and Mary Jane can be there when he dies. But then he really does die. And we get a callback to my one of my least favorite scenes in Spider-Man 1, which is the funeral. And there's a voiceover and it's definitely a callback. It's Harry's funeral this time instead of Harry's dad's funeral. And we get another voice over and the movie's not quite done yet but i did write down at this point um rest in peace spider-man franchise Mm. it was five years old (laughs) Um, and then our final scene is mary jane is singing and she sees peter parker and isn't everything great the end isn't everything great sure yeah yeah everything's so great his uh, his violence against his romantic partner was completely justified and excused away and everything was okay everything was totally fine eddie brock um blew himself to bits trying to get his alien symbiote suit marco left his daughter is still sick um harry died but he learned the truth about his dad before he did, thanks to Bernard the butler. Hey, Bernard, you might have mentioned this like two movies ago. Might have <laughs> saved you this kid that you love. Jonah Jameson uh, has an open staff photographer position, but he's also learned he can take pictures himself as long <laughs> as he has film in his camera. Mm, therein lies the rub. It turns out people can actually do work with their hands. What? Uh, what? So what have we learned about Spider-Man 3? It's, it's time for for uh, final judgments for this thing. Uh, Gene, how, how do you feel about Spider-Man 3? Because you, you put in a couple of hours on it. <laughs> I did. It took two hours and 20 minutes, I think, mm-hmm. to be exact. Uh, there was a lot of lessons, <laughs> as you say. <laughs> and I mean, that's, I think the main, I mean, there's a lot of problems and we've gone over them, but like on this level of like, what does it all mean? I'm not sure. Like, we always have a choice, you know, uh, but we forgive people. Things, you know, people have a dark side. Also, forgive yourself. Love lasts, you know, love is, you know, is enduring when, except when it's not. And yeah, uh-huh. anyway, I, I got a, a bit of a headache from the whole thing. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I I remember when I saw it in the theater and and, you know, again, like I enjoyed some of the you know, the Spider-Man rescuing type effects, like certainly with the crane and things like that. And, and I liked Venom, like when they first appeared, you know, it's like, Ooh, this is something really scary, but then nothing really happened with him. So he didn't bite anything for one thing (laughs) with all those teeth, but it certainly provided us with a a lot of material to pick apart uh, to death. Yeah. I'll say that for it. Um, Steve. Uh, yeah, again, as, as I said, this is the first time I saw this movie. Um, its reputation has it being one of the worst movies of all time. Um, I've, I've heard a lot of bad things about it. I actually didn't hate it. I, I There was a lot in this movie that I liked. I totally get where people are coming from when they dislike this movie. I, I think maybe Spider-Man 3's biggest liability is Spider-Man 2, because that movie is so good. 
and they do good things with the characters and it's well balanced and this movie uh, has none of those things. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of a mess. They obviously tried to cram way too much into it. Um, I don't really love thinking about Cliff Robertson being a knockout in his bathing suit. So there is that. <laughs> Uh, I do like the marching band rendition of the Spider-Man theme at the key to the city ceremony. So mm-hmm. that's a positive. Sure. You know, I, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it was a big dumb superhero movie with things in it that people didn't like and largely because, uh, I don't think most people who are fans of Spider-Man love the idea of watching Peter Parker be a dick for two hours. And that's basically what this movie is. I mean, he's. And and almost unredeemably so, you know. Sure, it's the symbiote's fault that he 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 decks Mary Jane. Uh, it doesn't make it any more fun to watch, um, and it kind of leaves a bad taste. So, you know, it's it's a big mess. And uh, but but I I didn't loathe it the way I was kind of hoping to, and that's that's disappointing in itself. See, you can't even do that right. <laughs> I like movies being bad. It makes me happy, Jason. Mm. Moises. Well, Jason, uh, I mentioned earlier that the the editor's cut that they put out 10 years after the theatrical release of this movie is probably the best way to watch this movie if you absolutely have to watch this movie. Um, but the the reason that I think it is so bad uh, that, you know, this, is, this isn't terribly original. A lot of people have said this is that it makes the movies that came before it worse. It it, it has that that retroactive continuity effect of cheapening the good stuff that came before it. Not completely invalidating them, but but this being this being the the end of this sequence of movies, just uh, it, it really does make the others poorer for it. Um, and and it's not just the little things that are kind of ridiculous and comic booky, like how the symbiote makes him so strong that flinging off his jacket in a jazz club blows a woman's hair back. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, the the um, the 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 sudden Catholicization of both. Peter Parker and Eddie Brock, Eddie Brock, who asks God to kill Peter Parker. Um, I don't know where that came from, but uh, but, you know, it gives them an opportunity to put them somewhere in that floor, in that four block radius uh, where there are bells uh, so Uh that they can uh, they can progress the plot forward. Um, I'm sad that uh, that the theatrical cut of the movie loses the Christopher Young score, which is much subtler, much nicer, much better overall. It's it's a big part of what makes the editor cut uh, a lot better. Uh, but I can't I can't even recommend people watch that. But if you feel like you've got to watch a version of the movie, watch that version of it. I had watched the editor's cut mm, sometime last year uh, when I realized it was baked into my iTunes uh, digital copy of the movie. And in the intervening time, I, I had had some of that amnesia metal that that pipe was made of, I guess, hit me mm-hmm. in the head and make me forget that I just so violently hated this movie as much as I did um, for some of the reasons that you did specifically as, as it pertains to Venom. Uh, Venom, j- the, the, the movie about Venom that is welded into this movie about Sandman and Spider-Man um, just takes things in directions that fully contradicts stuff that has come before and, and invalidates a whole lot of the stuff that people liked about these movies uh, going into this one. Uh, and, and, Granted, the first two movies aren't perfect. Sam Raimi's take on Spider-Man in this 1990s-60s sort of setting that he has isn't necessarily perfect, um, if you ask me. But I thought that there was potential um, if we had had this movie as a Sandman movie leading into a Lizard movie leading into a Sinister Six movie. That I could have been there for. But they, they just so fundamentally undid so much of the goodwill that was built up by the first two movies 
you know, there, there was, there was nothing to do, but, uh, but unplug this franchise from life support. Watching this, this is the second time I've seen it. First was in the theater. Um, my only memory of watching this movie in the theater, and I swear this is true, was being in the car on the ride home and saying, wow, that was really bad. <laughs> that, that's my only <laughs> thing that I remembered from it, really. Um, so watching it again, I was reminded of all the reasons that I thought it was bad. And and honestly, I agree with Steve. This isn't so bad that it can be enjoyed as a delightfully bad movie. It's broken. It, it's just a sad, broken thing. And it's broken for a lot of different reasons. I think it's very clearly broken because of interference from studio executives who wanted to put extra characters in the movie. I think it frustrates me because there is probably a decent movie here with Sandman as the villain, but we get, and and maybe furthering, you know, what was going on with Harry, although that's an annoying plot line, but I could see that continuing as well. Uh, That, that opening fight between Harry and Peter is actually very well executed. Um, And so part of my frustration is uh, I I really get set off by movies that you can see that they could have been good and they chose a different path for whatever reason and they end up being really kind of lousy because uh, in this case, I, I really do believe there is a good screenplay somewhere in here that got torn apart and that frustrates me and makes me angry at the movie. I'm also angry because um, I feel like Anybody who's making superhero movies in this era should probably have awareness of other superhero movies that have come before and what worked and what didn't work. And if there's any lesson to take from the Batman movies, mm. it's that adding more villains does not make the movie better. Like we we learned this lesson multiple times with those Batman movies that were so, so bad. And even the people who like Batman Returns, okay, how about the other two, right? Like they kept <laughs> adding villains it doesn't work. It doesn't make your movie better. And yet, whoever made Spider-Man 3 thought, nah, just jam another villain in there. It'll be fine. And, you know, take out some of that garbage and give everything else more time to, to breathe, and you'd probably have a better movie. And the last thing that bothers me about this movie is the first two Sam Raimi movies, although they've got some issues, are pretty good, especially for the era. They're pretty good Spider-Man movies. And then this thing is kind of, you know, is a disaster. And then they couldn't agree on uh, uh, conditions for him to make a Spider-Man 4. So they canned it and then rebooted the franchise from the beginning again. So it, it what, you know, I would have liked Sam Raymond to have an opportunity for redemption and also perhaps an opportunity to make a movie he wanted to make and uh, and not this, which is clearly made, at least in part, under protest. But um, alas, instead, it ends up being this trilogy with a with a bad end. Um, because, as Steve said, the contrast between this and Spider-Man 2 is pretty amazing. Or should I say spectacular? Either way, <laughs> it's lo- a, lo- a lot. It's a lot. So is it one of the worst movies ever? No, it's not. It's just a huge fall from the previous quality level and full of mistakes that somebody should have already learned not to make. Three movies they had to learn that. <laughs> one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest sequel betrayals in movie history uh, I would say, uh, disappointing in that like way. Batman Forever, did Batman Forever not teach you not to do this? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not. Because there's also Batman and Robin. In comparison, man, 
Batman Forever is a pretty great movie no. as compared to Spider-Man no. 3. Wow. As compared to Spider-Man oh, 3. No. As compared to hey. Spider-Man 3. No. <laughs> oh, no. In that very narrow definition. Wow. Batman Forever really did some things a million mm, times better no. than Joy Spider-Man Gasm. 3. You're out of order. This whole podcast is out of order. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we did it, everybody. We, we did. Got we, to we did. did. Thank did you. We? Summer of Spider-Man. Summer of Spider-Man. It's wow. That's for sure. All right. We've reached the end. I want to thank my guests for talking about, and most importantly, for actually watching Spider-Man 3. Gene McDonald, thank you so much for being on these uh, Summer of Spider-Man episodes. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Molly says thank you for soldiering on through the many spider movies. Jason, I have seen things in this series I have never (laughs) spoken of. Until now. <laughs> the, the night your love of this series died, I saw it. The wounds came from Avi Arad. <laughs> uh, Steve Lutz, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Uh, to quote Flint Marco from this film, end of the line, Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, it is the end of the line. Now I give the finger guns to everybody out there for listening to the Summer of Spider-Man. Join us next week when we will not be talking about another Spider-Man movie. But until then, thank you for listening to these Summer of Spider-Man episodes. 